Hi, everyone. Welcome once again to Dan 1132. I'm Jim Whitteveen. This is episode 36, our first episode of the new year, of the year of our Lord 2022. And it's a pleasure to be here with you starting off this new year with another discussion, another topic, one of many that, if the Lord is willing, we'll be covering in this year to come. And I've got a lot of plans for the podcast. If uh, time permits and all everything works out according to plan. We know that everything's in God's hands, but we hope that we'll be able to move forward with some of these plans to talk about many of the issues that we've begun to discuss over the past year uh, and other issues which I haven't begun to address yet, but which I plan to, such as the environmental movement. I plan to address that from a number of different angles. Uh, also critical race theory, which is a subject that I've been studying as of late, and the social justice movement, uh, other issues surrounding uh, totalitarianism, propaganda, uh, issues such as those which have a direct impact on us today, uh, issues like education, and how we should think about and how we can think about these issues from a biblical and Christian perspective. And so I hope that you'll continue to join with us as we hopefully uh, work towards a weekly broadcast once again in the year 2022. Now I'm going to start the year off by discussing an issue which is at the forefront of many people's minds today, and that's the issue of masking. Now, often those who are opposed to masking or enforced masking, we can put it that way, the enforced use of masks in public spaces and particularly in worship services, often we who are opposed to that are characterized as being rebels, as being people who are selfish, who are concerned about their own comfort instead of the safety of others and the comfort of others. The issue of loving your neighbor is brought into play. The issue of being someone who's a contrarian, you're just a contrarian. That's why you don't want to do this. You're, you're someone who, uh, an individualist who just wants to stand up for your own rights and put them first. So those are kind of the, some of the, the characterizations that are made of people who are called anti-maskers. Well, I'm going to take issue with that those characterizations in this episode, and I'm going to do that by going back in time to the year 1957 and to an article that was published in the American Sociological Review. And for those of you who are watching on Rumble, I've opened up that article uh, on your screens. For those of you who are listening, you can listen along as I read some quotes and I just take you through this article. Because this article says a lot, despite the, the fact that it deals with uh, the issue of tuberculosis and the use of protective gear in tuberculosis wards, it has a lot to do and a lot to say about the current discussion. And I'm just going to start by reading the first paragraph. In the first paragraph, the, the article is by Julius A. Roth from the University of Chicago, by the way. The first paragraph says this. It says, tuberculosis is a contagious disease. But just how contagious is it? In what ways and under what circumstances is it likely to be transmitted from one person to another? And what procedures are most effective for preventing its transmission? 
The answers to these questions are quite uncertain, and TB specialists show considerable disagreement in the details of the manner in which they deal with these problems. These uncertainties leave the way open for, and I've highlighted this sentence because this is where the rubber hits the road, these uncertainties leave the way open for ritualized procedures that often depend more on convenience and ease of administration than on rationally deduced probabilities. They also leave the way open for irrational practices that can properly be called, between quotation marks, magic. So the important words that I want to point out in these last two statements are ritualized procedures and the word uh, magic, also irrational practices. So ritualized, irrational, magical thinking. So the author of this uh, article goes on to talk about his research, which was done in a Veterans Administration Hospital. The procedures that were followed about uh, handing out books or uh, mailing things from inside the uh, the ward, all of these things he goes through and he talks about how uh, the rules appear not to make any sense. Books need to be sterilized before they leave. Money passes out of the, hosp out of the hospital without sterilization. And so uh, he argues that um, it seems that money would be something much more likely to spread contagion than books. But the rules state that it's the books that uh, undergo a sterilization process and not the money, which is likely to change, ha change hands a lot more often. And so he talks about the inconsistencies. Visitors not required to wear any protective clothing, not even masks. None of them ever do, he says. Entertainers, members of service and veterans organization who come to play games with the patients or bring them gifts. Uh, and But uh, those who are within, working within the system, uh, are required to wear protective clothing. Now, there are, according to the author, a number of procedures designed to protect employees and patients within the hospital from spreading TB. Uh, one method is the use of protective clothing, masks, gowns, and hair coverings. Hospital personnel are supposed to wear the, all of these things when they come into contact with patients or with their effects, the things that belong to them. However, he says, this protective clothing is often not worn, and there's a definite relationship between the degree to which it is worn and the rank of the employee. And so he goes through a list, and he shows his statistics about who actually used protective gear and who didn't. And those on the higher end of the totem pole, so to speak, were more often to be present with patients without using protective gear, while those who were on the lower echelons of service providers within the hospital would most often be using this protective gear. So what he says, he talks about the tables that he has, uh, has uh, outlined with the statistics. Uh, he says, as both of these tables show, the use of protective clothing is inversely related to occupational status level. The people of higher rank seem to have the privilege of taking the greater risks, particularly in the case of masks. The cap and gown are intended in part to prevent the spread of the disease to others. The mask is almost exclusively for the protection of the wearer. And so one of the, the 
in his reflections on why this is so, one of the points that he makes is that perhaps the lower status employees should wear protective clothing relatively more often because they perform tasks which require more intimate contact with the patients and with their effects. But he says that this factor, while it makes a difference, is not sufficient to account for the whole difference. And so he asks, why do persons with higher status wear protective clothing less often? And his answer is this. For one thing, it is not considered necessary by people who know best. There is no good evidence, and I've highlighted this statement, there is no good evidence that the systematic wearing of protective clothing makes any difference. Even the person who planned and administered the program could cite no evidence showing its effectiveness. And people who know most about TB do not seem to consider it worth the trouble. Doctors, and to a lesser extent professional nurses, are of course most likely to recognize the probable futility of these procedures. The relative ignorance of the lower levels of ward employees makes it more likely that they will have doubts about whether it is safe to go without the protective clothing, especially on routine duties when they must enter patients' rooms repeatedly in a short interval. There are, of course, circumstances in which almost everyone would agree that wearing of a mask and perhaps a gown was wise. It is the routine wearing of protective clothing for all contacts with patients that is generally rejected. Probably a more important factor is the likelihood that the employee can get away with a violation. A doctor need not worry about a bawling out for not protecting himself. A professional nurse might be criticized, but usually she is the highest authority on the ward. The chance of criticism increases down the scale. Students who are new and unfamiliar with the situation, they put in four-week stints. Any worry about possible demerits wear protective clothing all the time in patients' rooms. Some ward employees, especially those of lower status who are not properly dressed, hurriedly don a mask and gown if they see the supervisor of the nursing education program on the floor. So there's some explanations from the author's research about differential use of protective gear. So the people of higher rank have the privilege of taking greater risks. The people at the higher rank have a greater education. They know more about the limitations of protective gear, and they know that it doesn't work as many people think that it does. And many people simply wear the gear because they don't want to be criticized and they don't want to be disciplined for not wearing it. Now, the next section in the article is an important one, and it's called Magic and the Tubercle Bacillus. Now, we could modernize this and say Magic and the COVID virus. But this is what he has to say. He says, gauze or paper masks are rather difficult to breathe through. To make breathing easier, patients and employees sometimes pull down the mask until their nostrils have a clear space. This, of course, destroys the point of wearing the mask, and the mask then takes on the status of what? Of a charm necklace. So it takes on the status of a charm necklace. You wear it as if somehow magically it's going to protect you from the bacillus, in this case, or from the virus, but you wear it under your nose because you want to be able to breathe. And in my case, you don't want to want to be constantly fogging up your glasses. So... It, it becomes 
something that's completely pointless, but it becomes a symbol. And perhaps it becomes this kind of magic charm, a charm necklace. Now, there's also, he says, examples of institutional magic. In the state hospital, patients are required to wear masks when they go to the first floor for a haircut or for an x-ray, and when they go to the eighth floor to see the social worker or the patient services director. They do not have to wear masks, and never do, when they go to the first floor for occupational therapy, to visit with their families, to attend socials or church services, or to see, and I'm going to skip over a bunch of uh, tables here, or to see a movie, nor when they go to the eighth floor to the library and to play bingo. An examination of these two lists show that patients must wear masks when they go somewhere on business, but not when they go somewhere for pleasure, even though they use the same parts of the building and come into contact with hospital personnel in both cases. Now, having spent some time in the hospital uh, with uh, after contracting the COVID virus, I know that now uh, there is a great difference between uh, these uh, the, what, what went on in the 1950s and what goes on today. Now, personal protective gear is, uh, is pretty much universal. And obviously, uh, in our hospitals, uh, we don't have a library and we don't play bingo and we don't have church services. Uh, we are placed into wards and uh, looked after uh, in that way without all of those uh, the uh, socialized aspects of our socializing aspects of the hospital that the hospital used to have now. And at the same time, regardless of where you go in the hospital, you need to be, people need to be using uh, this personal protective gear, but we can see how this translates into daily life where the virus apparently operates at about uh, between five and a half and, and six and a half feet So as you walk into uh, a restaurant, you need to wear the mask. But when you're sitting down, uh, so when you're three to four feet high, apparently the virus doesn't operate. Now this obviously at at the same time is the same kind of magical thinking where where the mask functions as something of a talisman. So what the author writes is this. He says, the rules suggest that the tubercle bacillus works only during business hours. So the ward employee wears protective gear when carrying out her duties, but not when socializing with the patients. And why not? Well, the nurses or those those uh, employees who socialize with the patients or visitors who socialize with the patients uh, say their reasoning is that the gown and more especially the mask is a barrier to friendly intercourse. So the mask creates a barrier. And that's another point that people who are against these mask mandates are very much aware of. The barrier for socialization, the barrier for communion that is put between people because of the mask that they're wearing. We can't see each other's facial expressions. We can't see if the other person is smiling or not. We can't see the, the, the body language, which is such an, an incredibly important part of our conversation. This is also why online meetings and online uh, interaction in general 
is never going to be a substitute, an adequate substitute for person-to-person, personal uh, interaction and personal conversation, personal communion. So the gown and more especially the mask is a barrier to friendly intercourse, which is why uh, it was the it, at this time time period, it was only used in uh, official times, only during business hours, but not during uh, times of socialization. The author also speaks about man's laws and nature's laws, and concludes the article with this part of the issue. He says, rationally considered. The controls and protections used to check the transmission of TB, we could say COVID, should depend on an estimate of the probability of such transmission occurring under given conditions and in given circumstances. The problem for persons responsible for controlling the transmission of TB is to set their controls and protections at a level where a reasonable risk is involved. And I highlighted that phrase, reasonable risk, because that, I think... That over the past couple of years, that the, the entire idea of reasonable risk has been forgotten. Every one of us takes risks each and every day of our lives, and we often don't consider them. We take risks going out in traffic. We take risks driving to work. Uh, we take risks in many different ways, and I've spoken about that before. But the idea of reasonable risk, what's a reasonable risk? What's a risk that, that we can afford to run for the sake of living our life in the way that it was meant to be lived? That needs to be taken into account, and it is not being taken into account. And he continues and says, admittedly, this is not easy because of the uncertain knowledge about transmission and susceptibility and public anxieties about the disease. Even if one were to establish general rules for a reasonable level of control, on the basis of present knowledge about the disease, putting these rules into practice would still be a major problem. To deal with this problem realistically, the controlling agents need a good understanding of the social organization of the hospital, the disease concepts of the personnel, and the patterns of administrative thinking on the part of supervisory persons. Now, the last paragraph of the article I highlighted and I think this is extremely important, and this, uh, this is really the focus of, of what I'm talking about. The practices, he writes, surrounding contagion control in a TB hospital represent an effort to make man's laws approximate the laws of nature. And when nature's laws are not well understood, man's rules are likely to be more or less irrational and their observance vacillating and ritualistic. So my argument is that masks should be excluded from public worship and any kind of mask mandate that forces Christians, worshipers, to wear masks uh, in public worship should be uh, ignored and that we should engage in a, uh, a form of principled civil disobedience, always uh, doing that uh, with a spirit of humility, not with a spirit of rebellion, but based on the understanding that masking has turned into, in itself, a religious practice. The mask is seen as a talisman. 
It's seen as a good luck charm. It's seen as a, a charm bracelet, as the author of the article says. And the, the behavior that it exemplifies is a ritualistic behavior meant to appease the, we could say that the gods of this age, the spirit of the age, meant to uh, show virtue on behalf of those who are using them and to create a divide between those who are willing to use them and those who aren't. And so when we agree to go along with mass mandates, especially in worship, and there are many other arguments uh, against using masks in worship and enforcing mass mandates in worship, including confessional arguments and biblical arguments, but I think this is an overarching big-picture argument against the use of masks in worship. We are separating ourselves from one another. We are uh, making uh, the communication and communion between people more difficult by covering our faces. We are making singing more difficult, conversation more difficult. We're making ourselves uncomfortable, not to mention that there are many people who suffer from anxiety and various symptoms of anxiety for whom wearing a mask is uh, a major co uh, contributor to the worsening of that anxiety. Because anxiety, when people suffer from anxiety, they suffer from shortness of breath. They suffer from a pounding heart rate. They feel like they're not getting enough air. Uh, they feel very constricted. They feel like they need to get out of a certain situation. You put a mask on somebody who suffers from anxiety, and all of those symptoms are brought on simply because of the constricting nature of that mask. And so we need to think about that as well. So there are a number of issues that go into our thinking, or that must go into our thinking about whether we are going to participate in mask mandates willingly or not, particularly in corporate worship. And my point in this episode is that for those who are willing to go along with mass mandates to characterize anti-maskers and disparage them as people who have a rebellious spirit and who only care about themselves and who don't care about the community and who are not respecting the authorities, to characterize anti-maskers in that way is a mischaracterization, and I would say an egregious mischaracterization in many cases, in the majority of cases. Or perhaps there are some who are have a rebellious spirit. But that doesn't take away from the fact that many of us have seriously considered this, this issue. And many members of churches have seriously considered this issue. They're not thinking on their feet. They're not, they've, do, they're, they've done research. They've done due diligence. They've studied and they have principled objections to the use of masks. Because we've seen, and we, and, and we see it all around us, in the mall, in the stores, in the grocery store, the, the use of masks in our area uh, is pretty much 100%. 99% of people are uh, willingly and obediently using masks. And, and uh, the vaccination numbers have gone up. The people who are uh, following the restrictions, obeying the restrictions are, are many the vast majority, and yet we're still unable to uh, defeat, 
between quotation marks, this illness. Well, what does that say? It says that we need to be, as always in our lives, we need to use our common sense. We need to weigh the the, the risks and the rewards. We need to use a, a, a logical risk assessment in whatever activity we participate in, because all human behavior is risky to a certain extent. If I get on a bicycle, that's risky. If I go for a walk on the sidewalk, that's risky. If I go for a drive, it's risky. If I go for a swim in a pool or on a beach, that's risky. There are risks to each one of these behaviors. But we consider those risks and we weigh whether the the benefits that accrue from that behavior or activity outweigh the risks. And we should be treated as adults who can do that. But with the encroaching tyrannical ideology of many world governments, where the government cares for or is supposed to care for its citizens from cradle to the grave and even decide whether they, to, they are to be born and when they are to die, well then, it's no surprise when the population is infantilized, when the population looks to government to tell us what to do and how to keep ourselves safe. If the government were to implement a rule that said you must wear a helmet when walking on the sidewalk, I'm sure that many people would go along with that. But that's not the place of government. And that's not how these kinds of measures should be taken by us as people, mature people, who make our own decisions, who weigh our own risks, who look to a greater law, who look to a greater rule when we consider how we direct our lives and specifically how we worship. And so briefly, that's an introduction to the issue of mask wearing and my thinking on that, going back to this article from 1957. And again, just to go back to the beginning, just to remind you, it's called Ritual and Magic in the Control of Contagion. The author is Julius A. Roth from the University of Chicago. And it was uh, originally published in June of 1957 in the American Sociological Review, volume 22, number three. So that's where I'll stop for now. And I hope it's given some food for thought as we think about whether we will willingly participate in what has become a pseudo-religious or even a religious practice, and if we're submitting ourselves to that, uh, at the very least, a practice which shows a great deal of superstition when the evidence does not bear out that the use of uh, masks is helpful in any way, when it becomes an issue of the Ninth Commandment, that I'm not bearing false witness by participating in a lie and where I'm not uh, virtue signaling, even though I don't agree that a mask can do anything, we need to seriously consider those issues and leaders in the church need to seriously consider those issues because many members in the church are considering those issues and arriving at these conclusions. So on that note, that's all for this week. And I thank you for joining me on this first episode of the new year. 
And my prayer, as always, is that the topics that we discuss and the way in which they are discussed and the materials that we use will uh, help all of us to grow in understanding, to grow in ability to weigh the issues, and having done that, to stand firm and to take action in the words of Daniel 11, verse 32. So if you found this podcast helpful, please do pass it on. When people do pass it on, the the number of people that watch and listen does grow, as we saw in last week's episode. Some some people shared the episode, and and the number of viewers uh, doubled or tripled. So please do share on Rumble and also on the various audio podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, and wherever else you find this podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.